You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. Did this conversation with these four guys, this man walked up to me and he said, Hey, like I was just watching you. Have you ever heard of a communication modality called Gestalt? And I'd never heard that word in my entire life. And he says, um, Well, I'm a benefactor of this modality. And it's this awareness practice and this communication construct that I really believe in for healing the planet. And I was like, cool. I've always been a communication nerd and like been fascinated with interpersonal dynamics. And so he basically says like, if you're open to it, I'd love to sponsor you for a week-long training in Gestalt communication protocol. And I was like, I mean, amazing. Sure, at the time, you know, yeah. like 28. I'm like, great, this sounds amazing. So a couple months later, I find myself in this like weird classroom at the Cleveland Institute of Gestalt, which like quick background on Gestalt. Gestalt was like one of the primary therapeutic and psychological modalities in the United States before around like, I believe the 70s where insurance started to pay for therapy and psychoanalysis became the only therapeutic modality that was covered by insurance. And so Gestalt, which is a more experiential therapy, kind of fell by the wayside and really has become like a a relic within like modern therapy of like it's beautiful and respected, but it's just not nearly as prevalent as psychoanalysis or other modalities that we hear about. And so this is a derivation of Gestalt therapy and it's, it's purely a, a communication protocol and it's centered on these three principles of authenticity, curiosity, and the here and now, which I kind of like relate to presence. And so when we get into this class, this is what the instructor is encouraging us to focus on for this week. Basically just like, these are the things that we're going to focus on is can you be curious? Can you seek to understand yourself and the person across from you at the deepest level possible? Can you be authentic? Can you acknowledge that your thoughts and feelings are real and valid and deserving of a voice? And can you exist in the here and now, which is right here? No stories about the future and what's going to happen, but just this. And whenever I dive into personal development workshops, things like that, I'm just like, okay, how much can I get out of my own head and ego to just try on whatever you're saying is going to work? And so I was in that. I remember that I had this one moment that was a slight shift that kind of led me to the big one. And so they were doing this kind of contact exercise where people are, they're encouraging us to walk around the room and and then they say, stop. And they say, okay, like come face to face with the person who's closest to you. And there's this man. And so we stepped and we're, they say, now look into their eyes. And so I'm looking into his left eye. And then they say, okay, now take a step closer to a place where you're uncomfortable. And so we take a step closer and they say, all right, whoever has shorter hair, say exactly what you're thinking right now with no filter. And what I say is I feel that I sometimes do not get this close with men because I will be perceived as gay. Mm. And that was the first thing that I said. And I get goosebumps when I say it because it was the realest thing and something that I would never normally say. And the man across from me hits his chest, which meant like, I feel the same way. 
And I just remember that moment of raw vulnerability and the aliveness and like the tingles that I still feel in this moment that was electric, but that also created space for this man to share a truth that he likely would not have otherwise. And so I was like, all right, interesting. So now we're, we're getting in there, right? So first coffee break, I head over to the coffee machine and uh, this woman starts to walk towards me. Her name is Megan. And uh, Megan was the only other young entrepreneur in this class. Like at the time, I, I would think I was 30 actually. And so have you ever had that experience where you're trying to talk to someone at a conference and they're just not into it? Like mm-hmm. they're just kind of like yeah. not uninterested looking around the room. It's a shitty feeling. And so that was my experience with Megan. I was like, oh, she's cool. She's doing fun stuff in the world. She's service-minded. We're going to be homies. And she just wasn't having it at all. And so I was like kind of bumming on it. And so she walks towards me at the coffee machine. I was like, all right, authenticity, right? Everything you're thinking and feeling is real and valid, deserving of a voice. So Megan comes over and I say like, hey, Megan, like I just wanted to say like, I think what you're doing in the world is so cool. And I also wanted to share that I felt like I've been making an effort to connect with you. And I haven't really felt that reciprocated. And I wanted to let you know that that's all good. But also, I think I'm going to stop. So I just wanted to let you know that. And if you're ever interested in connecting, like, let me know and I'd love to. And so she doesn't skip a beat. She looks back at me and she starts bawling. She just starts crying. And I was like, oh my God, what the fuck did I do? Like, what did I say? And she immediately opens up and she says, oh my God, like, I don't want to be here. She's like, I'm getting sued by my co-founder. My boyfriend just broke up with me. This is the last place on the planet that I want to be right now. And that is where just the fabric of reality changed before my eyes. I realized that I had this whole story about her not being interested in me. My whole story is about not being smart or not enough. And it's not. She's just in her own experience. And I immediately realized that I'm doing that everywhere else in my life. Everywhere else in my life, I'm interpreting other people's experience and personalizing it. And it's trapping me in the cycle of insecurity and anxiety and doubt. And ultimately, like Megan came back from that coffee break and she shared that with the rest of the class. I don't want to fucking be here. And two other people were like, I don't want to be here either, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And so what happened in that moment, and this was the shift, and I felt it throughout the weekend, and I feel goosebumps through my whole body as I share it, is that my authenticity was no longer a vehicle for feeling confident or for being effective or having an impact that I wanted in the world. I saw my authenticity as an act of service because my authenticity in real time was creating space for other people to be authentic. And that was the shift, was that like so much more deeply than any of those other like personal desires, it's that I want people, I want you to be exactly who you are. I want you to feel safe to just be like, hey, I'm Ajit, here's what I'm thinking and feeling, that's all okay, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I have that desire for you, how could I possibly mean that if I wasn't courageous enough to model it first? to go first. And so that was the moment where I realized like I had spent so much of my life trying to overcome my own anxieties and insecurities with techniques and tools and strategies of communication. And I became an excellent communicator and speaker and trainer, but it never got rid of that self-doubt. It never got rid of the pit in my stomach, right? The strain of achieving and... 
what I realized in that moment is that this was so much more important to me is that simply devising a path back to authenticity and understanding that if I was able to do that, that I could create space for other people to do the same thing for themselves. And I think that that transcendent quality is really what fundamentally shifted all of my work in the realm of like transformation. That's beautiful. Such such a beautiful story and so powerful what you just said. The three things that you mentioned, authenticity, curiosity, and being present is some of the foundational teachings that we have here at Evercoach at different mm-hmm. programs and different uh, products that we have because truly believe that is the foundation of great coaching. Really, if you can be curious, if you can be authentic, which I think is the hardest of the three, and lastly, being being here and now. What has your experience been about being here and now? I find that a lot of us, and in our community as well, I often hear, well, that's how I grew up. Mm. Well, that's where you know my parents were blank. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with that. I struggle with that because I... At some point in my life, it shifted for me where I said, that's just not okay. Like my parents did what the best they could do. And there is a point in life where I have to say, fucking, I take responsibility for this shit. This is my life. Uh, I can take it today, like right now in this moment. And that shifted a lot for me in life. But what's your thoughts and experience around being able to get present to life? Yeah, the beautiful question. Well, I think I'll relate back to what you said, right? Is like even the story of like, this is where I came from or like my parents were like this. And is that I think that probably one of the biggest inhibitors of presence are the subconscious stories that we are running about who we are and how people perceive us. And so, so much of my work is really focused in the realm of relational, right? Communication, community building, relationships. And so I think that, what happens is we have these stories that are present in us that we're unaware of. Not enough. I'm not smart. People don't see me as successful. I can't be myself. I'm not old enough. I don't have enough experience. And so we have all of these like limiting beliefs, right? That we are constantly looking for confirmation of these stories because the brain seeks certainty. And so if we have these stories that have been there forever right? I'm not that type of person because I grew up this way. Then what happens is that we are constantly looking for evidence to back up that story. And so what we're doing is we're looking externally for something to confirm the story or to prove it wrong, right? It's like, oh, I'm not enough. I need someone to like me because if they like me, then I'll be enough. If I have that business success, like then I'll be successful. And so I think that what really keeps people from presence is fundamentally the focus on the external versus the internal. It's that when we are looking externally to validate our experience, to make it enough, like we are constantly going to exist in a state of anxiety. Because anxiety, like if you look at the Latin root, anxietas translates to not knowing, right? And I don't know how you're feeling about this conversation. I could make an assumption about it, but fundamentally I don't know unless I ask, right? Mm -hmm. But what I do know is what's my experience? And so when it comes back to presence, we can always come back to presence when we point our attention inwards. And I think that very few people provide us with a map to do that internal exploration. And so why these principles of curiosity, authenticity, and presence? Like I can know, like, what do I want to know about you? right? That's here right now. Like I can know 
what am I feeling in my body? Like right now I feel elated. I feel like a lightness in my body. I feel like tingles in my shoulders. And like, what am I excited to talk about? I'm excited to talk about this. I'm excited to talk about flow states with people. I'm excited to talk about men's work. I'm excited to talk about being a dad, right? Like these are things that there's no not knowing in that because that's real, that's present right now. And so fundamentally, I think what keeps us from presence, especially presence with people, is that we are looking externally rather than focusing our attention internally to what we can know. And once we are aware of what our experience is, then it just becomes a practice of getting out of the way, of allowing that to be, right? And I think it's like what we talked about with your podcast probably before we were recording of like, you had an idea of what this thing needed to be. And you realize that like the process for you internally was like, wasn't that fun, right? It wasn't exactly yeah. what you wanted. And so then you were just like, what do I want it to be? What's exciting to me? And then you did that and you turned the entire process into, it's like Alan Watts has a great quote about presence. And he says like, the greatest conductor is not the one who plays the fastest. The purpose of dancing is not to finish. Like the point of dancing is to dance, right? And so if we can turn the entire process into something that we love, like which like if we can just like come back to our experience and know that that's enough, then everything becomes so much easier to be present. Do you you find anything particularly helpful, a technique, a thought or, or whatever it may be to turn off the outside noise? that I find is one thing that all of us are constantly working on is to like go, okay, let's not turn that volume down a little bit so this volume can be turned up a little bit so we can really feel as to what we're feeling and think what we're thinking and to be able to go, I don't care. Like the story that we were talking about and we didn't get it on camera at the time, but the story we were talking about is I started the podcast like a marketing strategy. It's like, all right, we need another thing that people, what is the platform that we don't have? Let's start the podcast. We start the podcast and we are doing the podcast for the sake of doing the podcast where I'm like, all right, who's the guest? Let's (laughs) write down the questions. Let's ask the questions. And I was like, this is fucking boring as shit. Like, it's not fun. I'm not talking to the person. I'm just talking at them. I have a list of questions I need to get through. And I'm like literally bored out of my mind doing the interview because I'm not engaged like personally as a person. And at some point, that external voice of I'm doing the podcast for somebody else and sort of that it became about me, it became so much easier to do the podcast and not just easier in the sense of just make it easy for me, but even the listeners were like, ah, we really feel you in the conversations. We hear your people because there's no agenda. I'm not trying to get to a pitch at the end. We're just talking. And if it gets to a pitch at the end, great, good for everybody. But if it doesn't, the point is to have a great conversation. Yeah. Have you helped your client somehow turn down the outside voice, turn up the inside voice? Yeah, totally. So before I even, like this modality that, I, that I'm working on, I'm sure we'll get to it at some point, it's called social flow and it's how to create flow states with people. And before I ever talk to any of my clients or like any of my audiences about the strategies and tactics of creating flow, creating confidence, clear communication with other people, what I address is what I call the social identity. And the social identity is basically the oftentimes subconscious construct of beliefs about who we are and how other people perceive us, right? And if you were just to take 
60 seconds and write that question down on a paper of like, who am I with people? How do people perceive me? Right? How do people perceive me? Think about that question of like, what are the stories that I have about how people perceive me? And I've already mentioned a couple of those. Like, you know, if we look at the most popular ones, it's not enough, not beautiful, not successful. Mm -hmm. I can't be myself, not old enough, don't have enough skills. Like these stories that we have about how people perceive us, right? And I think that one of the most helpful things that we can do to quiet those voices and beliefs, which then cause us to look externally for validation, to either like to prove them wrong, right? We're constantly trying to prove these stories wrong with everything we do, which is so stressful because then every single moment, if we don't accomplish our object, it means that the story is more true. So everything's so stressful. But so we have these stories that are oftentimes more on the limiting side. So what we can do consciously is erect our empowering beliefs about who we are socially. And all of us have those, but oftentimes they're just not as present. Like the brain's primary object is to keep us safe. And so it's not to help us flourish, right? So by focusing on what could go wrong, we're more likely to make sure it doesn't happen, but that likely doesn't help us to feel good in the process. So when we think about empowering beliefs, like one for me would be an example of this is that my authenticity creates space for other people to be authentic. It creates in me the drawback to authenticity fundamentally as like an act of service. It makes it easier. I'm not looking externally because I know that one, right? It's, I would look at one that I had earlier this year that really transformed my life socially was thinking, wow, the people that know me, that really know me, their lives are better because I'm in their life. It's like, and not because of my skills, but it's because I'm a kind person, because I seek to, to help people. I care about people, right? And so I said, the people that know me, their lives are better. So when I meet people, I have this belief now that it's like, if they want to get to know me, their lives are going to be better. And what does that engineer in me? It's just a confidence and ease to just be myself, right? And so by constructing these empowering beliefs, and an important caveat here is that it is not helpful to erect an empowering belief that you don't actually believe, right? Mm -hmm. If I were to say like, I'm as sexy as Brad Pitt. I think I'm a handsome guy, but like, I don't think I'm as sexy as Brad Pitt, right? So that's mm -hmm. not actually going to register with me in a way that it impacts how I'm showing up in the world. And so I think that one of the most helpful things that we can do to quiet those external voices is to find out like, what are the empowering things and beliefs that I can hold about myself? And once we create those, now we also start to collect evidence for those stories to be true, right? Mm -hmm. When things are happening, like I'm hanging out with you and you're smiling and enjoying yourself. And I'm like, look, Ajit's life is better because I'm in his <laughs> yeah. life, right? It's like, great. Yeah. And then that's one of the simplest things. And then I would just bring it back to a classic because it really was a fundamental shift in how I was able to, I would say, defuse the inhibition and anxiety of external validation seeking and voice, as you called it, is Byron Katie's, the work. And so I think it's one of the most powerful constructs to eliminate limiting belief and story about the world that I've ever talked about. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, I've read her book. Okay, um, cool. I, re I don't recall the name of the book, I, but I've read the book. It's yeah. called, That's so, the only exposure yeah, I have so, to Yeah, so work. the book is called Loving What Is. And Loving so, is, yeah. yeah, the framework, which I will get largely correct here, but I may not get it right. So go to thework.com. It's incredibly powerful. Is anytime you have a story about how the world is or what someone else is thinking, right? So let's say that you're going into a big conference and you might feel a little bit of anxiousness and there's a subconscious story that's present that like, 
the people who are here, I'm not their equal. They don't see me as their equal. I'm not successful enough. This is one that I experienced personally, right? I can talk about like mm-hmm. having a mini panic attack at conferences when I was 24 running my first company and stuff. And so I have this story, right? These people who are here, they don't see me as their equal. So what uh, the work would do is it's four questions and a turnaround. So the first question is, is this true? These people don't see me as their equal. Is it true? Well, like, I guess I don't know, right? I think it's true, but like, I don't know for sure that it's true. So that's the first step. The second step, second question is, can you absolutely for certain know that this is true? And I was like, well, no, not just by asking. Like, unless I ask people, hey, do you think I'm your equal? Like, then maybe I could know it, but like, I can't know it if it's just a story in my head. So the third is to say, uh, how do I respond when I accept this story as true? And so I would say like, wow, when I think that I'm not these people's equal, I feel anxious, right? Like I get cotton mouth. I like want people to like me. I'm less capable of being myself. So now what I've done is I've acknowledged that, okay, I have a story about what's happening here. I've acknowledged that I have no way of telling if it's true or not. But even holding that story is making me nervous, is making me shy. And it's just a story, right? And so the fourth one is, who would I be without this story? So to walk into that conference without the thought of these people don't see me as their equal, well, I probably feel more confident. I'd probably feel more liberated to just meet people and to be myself. Like, oh, wow, that sounds nice. And then the next one is the turnaround. So you would take the story and then you would say, could the opposite be true? Mm -hmm. Could the people here actually see me as their equal? And then I get goosebumps again because then what you show yourself is like, yes, Mm -hmm. that is also likely to be that that is a possibility. And so what it does is just it diffuses the hold that these stories have about us. And so like what I would say is erecting empowering beliefs and having an actual modality to engage when anytime that we are feeling insecure, anytime that we're feeling anxiety, anytime we feel a contraction in our body, I can almost guarantee you that you are locked into some sort of story about how people are perceiving you, about what's going to happen in the future. And so if you pause, like that's why this is so powerful. Anytime you find yourself into a moment of displeasure and you just say like, what is the story that I'm telling myself? It's a powerful way to come back to presence and then to make a decision with a clear mind and not based on some false perception of reality. Beautiful, beautiful. Something that you mentioned during a conversation was to erect a belief. Now I get the point, you find the belief and then you find the stories to find how to believe them to be true. Is there a way that you thought, well, here are some internal beliefs and how do you find those internal beliefs? Is there a process to that or is it just something that is just going to come to your awareness? Yeah, I I would say if you look at moments in your life where you are doing your best. So if you look at the moments where you are thriving, the moments where you're feeling connected, the moments where you are feeling your best and you look at those moments and you ask yourself, what was my thought about myself in that moment? Mm. How were people perceiving me in that moment? And so we can mine our experience and make it a little bit more practical. Like, again, I think that it is helpful just to ask the question, right? Of like, why do my friends like me? That's a great one to start, right? Like, why do my friends like me? I have stories 
about why my friends like me, they're probably positive. It's like if we're having some success at work of like, what do people enjoy? Like, how do I contribute at work? Like these types of questions about where you have positive affirmation and like you can see proof of that. But then also just looking at individual moments and saying like, what are moments where I was thriving? What's my story about who I am, right? Like who I am as a person that enabled that. And in those peak moments, you know, it's like those are oftentimes the moments where we're really living our values, right? Where we're contributing. And so in those, there are likely positive stories that have been present. And I think what's great about mining our experience for that is that there's like an abstractness to saying like, what do my friends like about me? Again, we don't know that, but if you believe it and it helps you, go for it. It's like mm-hmm. nothing matters and everything yeah. matters. Like yeah. if you believe it and it helps you, use it. Great. Yeah. It's like identifying helpful beliefs. Don't just worry about beliefs. Because what I've found, at least working with a lot of clients in different capacities is that people hold on or think their beliefs and they mostly hold on to the negative beliefs, beliefs yeah. that are not helpful at all. Uh, like I'm not good enough and so forth. And more people also try to eradicate those beliefs. A lot of personal growth authors really, really get inclined in talking about only such beliefs. Like I'm not confident enough, I'm not sexy enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not that well, enough, which creates the system in the mind of a person totally. thinking there's just like bad and worse. Well, so here's the thing though. I think that it's really helpful and this has been helpful for in my own process is to acknowledge that those limiting beliefs actually are helpful. We're not aware of it, but like those are there for a reason because when we have a limiting belief, if I have a fundamental belief, right, that I'm not pretty, what am I going to do? I'm going to do everything in my power to work out, to get work done, to be healthy, to prove that belief wrong. But also in the background, while it triggers a behavior that is trying to solve that, I also feel bad because I'm not actually changing the belief. So to say that they're not helpful is that I think it's important to acknowledge that limiting beliefs cause us to try and prove them wrong. But what it does is it makes the process of achievement and growth quite like painful and tedious. And so these beliefs that we have about ourselves do trigger new behaviors, which fundamentally I think is coaching. It's about behavior change, right? And so these beliefs are not optimal, I think would be like a more accurate way to describe it because they do have an impact on how we express ourselves in the world. But I think that what we do as we start to get older is we realize like, I don't just want external impact and achievement and success. I want to feel good. Like ultimately at the end of the day, Neville Goddard, one of my favorite teachers, he wrote a great book called Feeling is the Secret. And he would say, everyone is doing what they're doing because of how they think it will make them feel. Everyone is doing what they're doing because of how they think it will make them feel. And so like at the end of the day, we're all just after, like I want to be successful because when I'm successful, I'll feel safe, Mm -hmm. right? I'll feel like I'm enough. It's like, I want to have that partner because if I do, like, then I'll feel pretty. It's like, there's a feeling state that's underneath it. And so I think that what happens is that the limiting beliefs drive us to have external impact, but they fuck up the ability to actually create the feeling state that we want. And so they drive us forward, but they're certainly not optimal. I agree. They're not optimal. And maybe not helpful is not the right word. Not, not optimal is the is the better word, but I still do believe that beliefs that are limiting beliefs, as we call them, are 
limiting in yeah, nature. Totally, totally. Uh, and so they don't necessarily <laughs> help when you are trying to do something that's really hard. I never thought I'd be um, arguing that limiting beliefs are like, <laughs> no, limiting beliefs are great. <laughs> uh, but what, what I found is that at least, and, and maybe it's my experience of life and my experience of, of clientele and the people that I tend to work with, is we tend to be working with people that are trying to do really hard things. Mm. Uh, hard things in their capacities, their capabilities. It already is out of function. It's almost an impossible pull that they're trying to do. And it's almost like while they're trying to do something really hard, we throw an anchor in the ocean while the ship's trying to move. And that's what a limiting belief acts yeah. as. So it, from my point of view, from totally. my work's point of view, it's almost we fight to not have those limiting beliefs. Yeah, and, totally. and, the, and the reason is basically because they act as anchors yeah. or not doesn't let us move. What I've found to be more helpful is what you're saying, which is to find, and I call it a reverse timeline. We have a system for it where we say, similar to what you said, find the great moments of why friends love you yeah. or why you did something great. Because most people remember... I lost something or I lost a job or my business didn't work out. But what they don't remember is what happened after. Mm. Because right after that shitty situation, something fucking amazing happens. Mm. Because that's why you turned around. Like it's kind of like the turnaround that happens. It's like you're like, oh, my business didn't work and I found this new model of business. And so I started doing this or I found a new career altogether or my relationship didn't work. And that was like, for me, I was like, my last relationship, this one's working, but the last one didn't work. Yeah. And the one didn't work taught me so much because of which I have the relationship I have now. I'm more aware as a person. I know what I'm creating and so on and so forth. But people make relationship ending as end of their worlds. Business ending is end of their worlds. I've ended my career and that was the best blessing I had, but I couldn't see it at that time. It was impossible. Totally. But post, if you make a timeline of life events and go, what were the most challenging things that you did? Yeah. And then look at life right after that. You will find your star events mm. that will show you your grit, your perseverance, your ability to be intelligent, smart, kind, caring, totally. whatever it I was that, that yeah. got you to shine. You find that and then you do the same thing that you said. You erect that belief by finding more and more evidence. One big evidence is already there and you go, holy shit, this is you, me too. You call yeah. them the star moments? Yeah. yeah, highlight moments. Highlight, yeah, the highlight, highlight moments. moments. Yeah. Exactly. So right. those are the moments that you always go, oh crap, like, these are the moments that now I know, holy shit, I can handle anything because I survived this, this, and everybody survived like yeah. many things in our lives, pretty yeah. much everyone. So that's very similar to what you said. I love that. I was loving while we were just starting the conversation, you had coined a word which I didn't know about and I want you to say the word again, which talks about the love for what is. Yeah, totally. Well, so I, I definitely didn't coin the word, but I love it. It's my favorite word of 2022. And so I've spent a lot of the last uh, couple of years researching flow states. And so one of the uh, central tenets of creating flow states is uh, doing things that have an autotelic nature. And so the word autotelic means uh, something that is done for its own sake. Something that is done for its own sake. And so we had just, you know, told those Alan Watts quotes about like the point of dancing, not to finish or to like be perceived as like a great dancer necessarily, unless you're in a competition, but is to dance, right? And we talk about, I think, I think about it through the lens of communication most oftenly, which is that if we think about communication, it's so often our communication is predicated on the desire for some sort of external impact, perception, or validation, right? It's like our, we have a goal that is there. And it's good to have a goal, even within flow states, they say, it's helpful to have a goal uh, loosely gripped. 
means that you're aware of what a goal is, but you're not holding on to that. Because what's most important to really achieve these optimal states is actually just doing the things that are enjoyable in the moment, right? And so learning how we can turn communication into an act that is intrinsically rewarding and fun. Because if we can learn and teach ourselves, and I believe that anyone can teach ourselves like what we enjoy about conversation, what makes it fun for us, what makes it easeful, that we don't need to delay gratification until we have some sort of result or impact. It's that the whole process becomes the point. And this is true for conversation. I think that this is true for sex. I think that like when we think about some of the best, most poignant advice I ever got was I asked this man, what's the key to having great sex? And he said, become less goal-oriented. And as I know, a Tantra enthusiast, when I see one, and so like, you know what I'm talking about, is, but if you think about become less goal-oriented, it's like so often, it's like we have been conditioned into seeing coming, right? Of orgasm as like the finale, like this is where it's all headed. And if we're so focused on that as the goal, then everything before that is kind of just a step in the process to get us to the thing. But if we realize that, well, actually, like the goal of lovemaking is not to orgasm necessarily, like it's sure it's a nice part of it, but what if like just grazing a neck? What if kissing was just it? And it was all part of this experience. It was enjoyable. Like what happens when we're not so goal-oriented in sex or in conversation is that like we're able to find a deeper presence and enjoyment of the thing that we're doing. And so like oftentimes I think about like the tantra of conversation of how to really just become present and to enjoy conversation because it's awesome and it's, it can be fun and you get to learn stuff and talk about ideas, right? And so if I just allow that to be enough, if I don't need you people, well, I hope that you're getting value out of this, but like if I don't need that, like if I don't need to wait for this to be good to hear how other people are responding to it or how it's going for you, that I'm just enjoying it, then I just want to be here. It's just easier. You know, I, I, I said with Ajit before we were recording that I truly like on the way here, I was kind of meditating and just present with my experience. And I was on the brink of tears because if I was doing a podcast like this four years ago, I know I would come in and I'd do a good job and I have a bunch of fun ideas and I'm good at packaging things, but I would feel nervous. Like I'd feel a contraction in my belly and like I'd be worried. There'd be a, a little bit of worry there. And as I was in the car today, I just didn't have that. And it's because I just knew like, I'm just excited to have a conversation with you, right? I'd like, I don't need to remember anything. I'm not coming in the same way that you restructured your podcast. And so just to be in a place where I'm able to trust myself is a result of like an evolution of awareness and values. To be able to feel the transmutation of anxiety, like truly into excitement is one of the greatest gifts of my life. And it's so nice to be there. How does it feel to come to this place in life generally, because this was powerful for me, is why I asked this question, Yeah, is uh, to come to this place where you say, you know, I'm going to do this just because I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not trying to achieve anything. I'm not trying to get to a goal. How does it feel? How does it, as a person, how does that feel on a day-to-day basis? I was talking to a friend recently and I said, it feels like there is a hand that has punched its way through the atmosphere and has grabbed me by my shirt and is like pulling me through life. Like life has a pull of it where it requires so much less energy and I find it so much more 
easeful to be in the world and to be with people. There is an energy pulling me. It's this absence of forcing that makes it all so much more fun. So like what it feels like is an ease. What it feels like is a, an excitement and it just feels more real and more present. Yeah. And how did you get to, because you know, somebody like a hand punching through the atmosphere, pulling you through life, <laughs> that requires a lot of trust to yeah. just think that it's pulling me in the right direction. Was there a process to build this trust with life, the, the relationship with universe, life, however you want to name it? Or are you still building it or have you built it or how does one build it? Yeah, Any thoughts on that? Yeah, 100%. It's that I think it comes down to beliefs of like, how are we architecting our reality? And if I had my phone, I would read this beautiful W.H. Auden quote called the more loving one. And why I trust this way of being is because fundamentally under all of it, I know that this way of being is grounded in the service of others as I believe that this way of being not only feels good for me, but in my experience, it is serving the people in my life as well. And beyond that, like how I can trust it is that I just know fundamentally that my driving value in this is to be as loving as I can in every interaction. And that I think about that and I ask myself the question, like if I am the more loving one in every interaction, like is there a way that I could look back at my life and say that I didn't do my best, right? And so if that's there, like what it liberates for me is like, okay, I have some principles that I can continue to come back on to be loving, to be intentional, to be curious, to be authentic and to be present. And I really do believe that like to the best of my ability, like if I'm expressing those values, that is the best that I can do and I can trust it. And you know how that impacts other people? Like I get to find out in real time and respond to it. But yeah, having those driving values and principles, like it just allows me to trust it because it's as much as I could believe anything about how the world works and how I need to be, those make the most sense to me. Beautiful. I love something you said in passing and I love it also because I can relate to it so much. You said something to the tune of, if I could be just more loving and I think something in those lines. I think it's so beautiful because I can feel the heart-centeredness of it to go, oh, all, all I have to be just is a little bit more loving. And if I can be, the other person is going to receive the way they're going to, I can't control their experience, totally. but I can control my intention yeah. or my, not control, but like I can have my intention. I can be present to it. There's a rule I have when I do business partnerships is when we sit down to negotiate the terms, mm. you should feel you got more chips from the table than I did. Mm. Right? So it's like if there are 10 coins on the table, I want you to feel that you got six. Mm. And that is when we won as a relationship because... Mm. What we'll never have is you walking away regretfully. Mm. That you would never regret that transformation, that transaction. You would never regret that partnership because you would feel you won. Feels so true. If I have to contextualize the life, it would be if we had 10 chips of love on the table and you got six, you would never regret that association. I would love it too because I felt like I give more. Yeah. So it's such a beautiful way if all of us could live that way. That would be amazing. I think the world would be even more beautiful as a place. Yeah, I think in the similarity that I hear in that again is that it's like it is the perception of service, right? It's that if you're going in and the goal is I'm going to try and achieve this where you feel like you're getting more than I am, 
it's like then you can trust your actions there. It may it may not go, and I'm sure it doesn't always go the way that you think it will. But all you can control is the intention going into it. And if we're grounded in that service, then it's it's the best that we can do. Yes. While you were starting our conversation, you said the focus of your work right now is, or what I've heard and understood is communication, gestalt, uh, flow states, and men's work. Mm. Are they all integrated or are these are four different categories that like I mentioned? It's all the same thing. Well, you know, when I say it's the same thing, I think fundamentally so much of it is grounded around like this social flow framework that's liberating. And it's basically this four, four question acronym that I call ICANN. So intentionality, curiosity, authenticity, now. And so fundamentally, like what are those values that we can bring into any social situation that allow us to become aware of how do I want to be? What do I want to know? Uh, what am I feeling right now? And can I be present? Mm-hmm. And so like those things in any given moment, I think are enough to really show up with confidence and clear communication. And so... And are you saying this I can as a framework of social flow? Yeah. So that's the, the fundamental framework. And then before that, we get into the identity work with the social identity, but it's basically the social identity work then with the practical like strategy and tactics of I can, which in any time that you are walking into any sort of social situation and feeling anxiety, insecurity, self-doubt, if you just allow yourself to come back to intentionality, curiosity, authenticity, and presence, I, I fundamentally believe that that is enough to show up and to have the most positive impact on others without all of the strain and effort that we so often associate with having an impact socially. And so that social flow framework is where most of my work in the realm of communication, interpersonal dynamics is focused. And then with men's work, you know, I specifically started into men's work because like I experienced the power of it. I started a men's group about uh, six years ago. And this experience of like, I would say fundamentally social flow is liberating people to really like be themselves to trust that their authentic experience is enough. And like for me, I had experienced so much trauma around being vulnerable with the men in my life of like from being really bullied, like growing up in Hawaii to just feeling isolated through like most of my younger schooling years. And so the experience of being myself in a container of men and creating space for men to have a similar experience was so cathartic and healing. And so that's foundationally like where the communication modality like ties a lot of the work back thematically. But as you look at men's work, where a lot of it, and I remember our conversation like recently, we went deep on this, is using that as a foundational modality to help men to connect and to be authentic, honest, vulnerable with one another. But also I pair that with the integration of meaningful rite of passage work. And so if you think about rites of passage and what they are, a rite of passage is fundamentally any experience that allows an individual, not just a man, but anybody, to transition their status or responsibilities within a community, right? So you think about a rite of passage is a transformation of status or responsibilities within a community. And, you know, one of the, the most prevalent and important rites of passage that we have experienced throughout the history of modern civilization is the rite of passage of a boy to a man. And if you think about that, you know, in tribal civilizations, like that really mattered because what happened is that when you are transitioning from a boy to a man, 
the responsibilities upon you are truly hunting, is providing for your people. It is protecting, right? And so what's so powerful about rites of passage is that we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about identity, right? It's kind of like, it's like what we think about ourselves is going to impact so much of how we show up in the world. And so boy and man fundamentally are biological things. They are uh, identities, Mm -hmm. right? And so like, if I am a boy, that's an identity. I am a man, it's an identity. And then there's a biological imperative for for gender as well. And so what happens if someone transitions from a, a boy to a man and they say like, I'm a man now. And that comes with new responsibilities and new status. That's meaningful and it will impact how they express themselves in the world. But what's more powerful and why rites of passage were these communal experiences is because when someone takes on a new status, I'm a man now, and you have a group of people who are validating that, it only reinforces the new identity more deeply. So now that person will be more likely to express the desired behaviors for that civilization, right? So historically, this is why rites of passage were so important. And if you look in modern times, right? The absence of meaningful rites of passage for men specifically, it's there were two that were basically built into society for a very long time that have been pushed back to much later in life. And so the two of those that I started to kind of like realize as I got deeper into this work is these two rites of passage that uh, facilitated a man's shift from a focus on self to a focus on other. Can you guess what those were? Do you remember? No. Okay, so it is uh, number one, marriage. Marriage. That's what I was taught, but I was like, I don't know which one yeah, you're talking totally, about. Yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's it, folks on the you, other. Yeah. yeah, because if you think about when were people getting married in the '60s, in their oh, early twenties, oh, right? Twenties, yeah. And when are people getting married now? 30s, Middle, 40s, like yeah, yeah. they're, they're mid thirties, forties. And the second one is child rearing, right? Yeah. When were people having kids in the '60s? Twenties. Twenties. When are people having kids? Mid thirties and forties. And so as these like fundamental rites of passage have been moved back, and then you also have other ones, which is kind of like conscription into the military. You have uh, religious rite of passage, all of which have kind of like decreased in their prevalence in society. I call it kind of this, it's created this Peter Pan syndrome where, or like, you know, if you're on Twitter, like they probably call it like fuckboy syndrome, which is that you have all of these men who are enabled to, continue with a focus on self and ultimately like that's never going to be fulfilling right mm-hmm. is the focus on self and so what we have done with the junto is tried to synthesize a modern rite of passage which is grounded in gestalt awareness practice and social flow but also takes these three fundamental principles of deconditioning values and contribution so deconditioning is that like so much of our identity as men is an inculcation, right? Inculcation means something that's like informed by society. So what we think it means to be a man is simply kind of a, an organization of the tropes that we've seen in, in media. It's the lessons that we learned from our father, from our peer group, from wherever we grew up in the world. And so our sense of like what it means to be a man has been architected by many people other than ourselves, Right. And so the process of unearthing, well, what do I think it means to be a man? Like, what are the characteristics of being a man? What are those? If you look at the, the literal definition of masculinity, it says masculinity is a collection of traits 
values and actions that we associate with the experience of being a man. So it's inherently subjective, right? Mm -hmm. And so simply by actually helping men to take a deeper look at, like, what have I made it mean to be a man? And actually asking themselves, is that accurate, right? Is this my own definition? Or have I adopted an external understanding of what it means to be a man? Like, what is masculinity? And through that lens of deconditioning, we start to see that our identity is malleable, right? It's like, oh, like, I made this up. This is my interpretation of what it means to be a man, of what masculinity is. And so from that place of understanding that the masculine identity is malleable, then you move into values, which to me, I believe that when it comes to erecting a positive identity, the most effective tool that we have at our disposal is values work. And so values is basically just understanding like what are the fundamental guiding principles for me to be me in the world. And like we do exercises, if you'd like to, we can get into that. We do exercises that allow men to practically erect a system of core values, which say like, hey, here's what the world has told me it means to be a man. Here's what I think it is. But more importantly than what type of man am I, what type of human am I? Like, who am I as a person? Mm-hmm. And I think that values are what allow us to say like, here's what I am. Like I am connection. I am love. I am kindness. Like I am these things expressing themselves in the world. That's who I am. So you give men the opportunity to erect a positive identity on their own terms. And then the third one, and here's, I mean, I get goosebumps because it's so powerful to watch men stepping into this, is contribution. Is this idea, again, that rites of passage were about a a transformation of status and responsibility in a community. And throughout history, rites of passage and civilizations were defining what those responsibilities were. Right? So if you're existing in a tribal community, it's transitioning into a man meant that here's what your responsibilities were. And I think that as we have evolved into modern times, there is some set of collective ideals that we associate with the evolution of a, a boy to a man of just like maturity, like nonviolence towards others, unless it's like directly called for. But what's more important for the times that we are in is for men to articulate of their own volition. What are they committing to in the world? How do they plan to contribute? What is the responsibility that they are willing to commit to? And this is what so much of Jordan Peterson's work talks about is that like the the pathway to a meaningful life is responsibility and choosing the responsibility that is meaningful and important to you. And so that's the third piece of this rite of passage is empowering men to understand viscerally what is the responsibility, whether that is for a community, whether that is for a cause that they are committing to, something that is greater than the self. And then in the same way where you had a community that was able to receive this new version of themselves, like what's so powerful about our synthesis of the modern rite of passage is that you have a community of men now, like we've gone through many of these retreats, but that then you have the community of men who are all receiving these men in their articulation of who they really are and what they're committing to in the world. So there's also a community of people built in who are holding them accountable for being that person in the world. Mm. So that's the Junto and that's so much of what we're excited about. And 
my goal with how we want to contribute here is that we've synthesized a three-day curriculum that we call the Junto Modern Rite of Passage. And it's been completely open sourced. So anyone who would like to have a meaningful rite of passage experience, what we have done is synthesize the foundational prompts, questions, and exercises so that any group of men could take this curriculum, could go into the woods, like have a tent, like eat tuna. You don't need a lot of money to do this. And that you could go out with your buddies and that you could create one of these experiences for you and your close friends. And that's my goal is that we've created a structure that is so accessible that anyone, whether that's a youth sports team, a fraternity, or a group of buddies in Austin, have the knowledge to go out and create one of these types of experiences. That's beautiful. And thank you for open sourcing that. Would you talk a little bit more about Junto? I know we just kind of dropped what it is, but tell a little bit about what Junto is. And yeah. also if you're open to do share how people can get access yeah, to the curriculum. Yeah, totally. So uh, it's uh, wejunto.com. And so Junto was actually the name of one of the first civically minded secrets. Let me spell it for people. W-E-J-U-N-T-O. Nailed it. And so Benjamin Franklin actually started the first Junto and it was a secret society that was erected for the mutual benefit of its members and the advancement of society. And that's where they came up with the idea for the fire department. And so I just, I love that idea. And so that's where the name came from. And essentially what we do is we create these wilderness retreats that are three days, Friday to Sunday. And it takes people through this experience of first teaching them the fundamentals of social flow, of like how to come in, how to connect with their present moment experience through intentionality, curiosity, authenticity now. And then what we do is we take them through this experience of deconditioning, connecting with their values, and ultimately connecting with contribution and what responsibility they're taking on in the world. And so we've been leading those in New York and California, and uh, we've started to really shift our focus. I think what's helpful about the retreats is that on the retreats, you have experienced facilitators who are able to take men more deep into their emotional experience. And with the open source guide, a lot of that revolves around the questions and the prompts and the experiences where it can be a very deep emotional experience on those. And we've heard that it has been, uh, but also you don't have a trained facilitator to take you into some of the really deep somatic healing territories. So that's kind of the difference between the open source guide is that that's something that anyone could do with no experience as a facilitator, as a coach. And uh, the retreats are an opportunity to, we follow the same curriculum, but that's just with the assistance of facilitators who are able to really open up a space for some deep stuff. If I could take your reflection on where, I understand that we as men don't, and I agree with you 100%, that we don't have rites of passage that we used to have um, because of whatever reasons of the societal change and how society is evolving. What I'm also finding, not increasingly, but maybe it's just more in my awareness at this point is I see men struggling a lot mm. more, even when they are married, even when they have relationships and, and so on and so forth in just the way society has rebalanced itself. Mm. If I was, and this is this was a fun conversation with my father, my father was like, I never changed a diaper in my life. And he wasn't saying there's being a proud person. He was just like, there was just never even a thing that we were changing diapers. Yeah. And I see my kids changing diapers. They're like 50% partners. They are cooking the food and they're cleaning as much as their wives. It's not like, I'm not trying to be boastful or anything, but he was like, I cannot believe that's the world. Totally. And I couldn't believe that I could be in that world. 
even if he was contributing in the house every now and then because we saw that. But it's just so out of his reality. And this is one generation. Yeah. One generation in a country like India because I come from India. So in just one generation, the change is so much yeah. that while yes, women are changing and of course they are dealing with their own sense of change and evolving society. I think the thing that we don't talk about enough mm. is the change that men have to experience in one generation with no person that can guide them really. If you mm. really think about it, my dad's like, I don't know really how to help a lot of your situations. And mm. he's honest about it, which is great. Because he says, I can give you my point of view, but if you say from point of experience, I can't comment because I never have been in the circumstance that you have been or know anyone. So I can go talk to this friend. Nobody has been. So there's no uncles, aunts, grandparents, fathers that can kind of tell us how to manage this new world where there's a lot of societal changes that lead to biological changes for men. And it's hard to navigate. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the formation of the modern men's movement and men's work as we understood it, it was really a response to second wave feminism. And basically, you know, you had men like Warren Farrell and other people who, Robert Greene, King Warrior Magician Lover. And basically what was happening is, is second wave feminism was, again, it's like you have a very important movement of women basically kind of like vying for equality as it comes to economic empowerment and opportunity in the workplace. And thank God for that. And also like what happened is there was this cultural shift is that you had these very rigid gender roles, right? Where you have man as provider, protector, and you have woman as nurturer. And so these were very deeply held. Like they'd been there for a long time. Yeah, still deeply held. Yeah, they're still deeply held identities that were so prevalent. And so when modern men's work was synthesized, what they were saying is like, hey, we've all been taught that this is what it means to be a man. And that's no longer the case. Like what we need to basically create space to have this conversation about like, what does it mean to be a man in a world where it's not this binary of if you're a man, you are providing and you are protecting. If you're a woman, you are nurturing. And so that's where men's work really came from, was just it was providing a space for men to have a more nuanced conversation about what it means to be a man, right? When society was not so directly imposing what it is. And I think that now, like even more so, I think that more equality and fairness is a good thing. But similarly, it's an evolution of what was happening in the 60s is that like where there is more equity and equality in the world, I think fundamentally for relationship to work, there is a need for polarity. And this is not a a gendered thing, but there is a fundamental need for polarity between the masculine and the feminine. And so I think that what is so important and what we lack and what a lot of the work that I do focuses on is helping masculine men to tap into their masculine and to understand what that essence is, whatever it is. And I believe that by like this type of exploration of masculinity, you create more space for polarity and positive connection with the feminine. My personal take on men's work is that it is helpful to address like what does it mean to be a man But more importantly, like the bigger conversation that it gets to is that if you ask yourself the question, what does it mean to be a man? 
how could you stop there without getting to the question of like, what does it mean to be a good human, right? And that like, if more people are working towards the conscious articulation of identity, that there's a natural evolution to that, which ultimately serves everybody. But what does it mean to be a man? For me, it's like, I think about that very simply, that it's like, I am a man and I identify as a man as a gender, but like what that says about me and my responsibilities or like anything else, like I don't really associate a great deal of anything to it. It's like, I think that like, it's helpful to understand that like there are stories and things that I've had attached to that in the past, but like ultimately I'm much more interested in who is Andrew? Who am I? That's the, that's the more interesting question to me. <laughs> I love that. And I love that for many reasons, because I think that's eventually a great question to ask for anyone, man or woman, yeah. as to who you are and identify that as an answer. And that may be the future, right? rightly so. The future may be, it's not about saying if you're a man or a woman, but who you are as a person. Yeah. And I think your work is so relevant in everything that we just talked about, even in the end the curiosity that you need to maintain, the authenticity that you need, the I can work, the identity that you need to identify and and curiosity and authenticity. I think everybody needs to really double down on all of that. Yeah. Be able to make sure that we are part of the society and it grows into something that's beautiful yeah. and continues to grow into something beautiful and doesn't end up in a situation where we are more lost than we are found. Yeah. Uh, we have an opportunity here and America has always led the way. So I'm glad that this is definitely more prevalent here yeah. right now, the work that we are talking about uh, as well. Uh, philosophically, I think we have advanced a lot here. So I think in another important aspect of this is that like we talked about kind of the development of like what I would call a healthy masculinity and some of the societal impact. But I think another really important aspect of men's work as I see it being delivered in a lot of containers today is really the focus on emotional mastery and providing space for men to really get in touch with, to experience and express the totality of their emotional experience. Because I think that again, you know, so much of the like inculcation of masculinity is one where we have to project the image of strength in the absence of vulnerability. And within the modality of Gestalt, Fritz Perls, the founder, would say that like what we don't express, we suppress. And if we like suppress enough over time, like it will leak out in unintended ways until you hit a moment where it just explodes. And I think that that suppressed emotionality, whether it's sadness, shame, rage, anger, anything, that those explosions is oftentimes like where we get acts of sexual violence and, you know, just people acting improperly and violently in the world. And so I think that that's another really big piece of this. And like coming back to just helping everybody to feel the totality of their emotional experience and letting them know that that's okay. And that in doing that, there's a lot of wisdom about who we are, what we need from our life and, you know, what the path forward is. So just wanted to share that one piece because it feels like a really important aspect of men's work to me. Oh, it is, it is. Thank you so much for sharing and adding that. And with that, any other closing thoughts? I just really enjoyed the chat. I did as well. It was, I, very it was fun amazing. And, yeah. How do people get to know more about you? Of course, there's vjunto.com. Yep, so there's vjunto.com for the men's work. Uh, my personal website is itsandrewhorn.com. Uh, you can just Let's spell it for people. Yeah, so. it's I-T-S-A-N-D-R-E-W-H-O-R-N.com. 
And so that's my personal website. You can find everything there. And then also, I'm going to add a, an offer in here for everybody. So I have another company called Tribute, which is the easiest way to make a group video montage that you can give as a gift on any occasion. So imagine Ajit waking up on his birthday. He gets 30 videos from everyone he knows telling him why they love him. So that's tribute.co. We think it's the most meaningful gift on earth. And so whenever this releases, I'm going to have Ajit include a code in the description so that all of you can check out Tribute and create one on the house. Uh, so that's a $29 gift right there for all of your listeners. Oh, thank you so much. It is actually one of the softwares that we use so very often. It's tribute.co, right? Yeah. Uh, tribute.co is the domain for it and we use it so very often for our friends' <laughs> birthdays. Best. We've used it for Vision. We've used it for me. We've used it for Nita. We've it's, used yeah. it for pretty much anybody that we know yeah, it's the best. as the surprise thing that they suddenly get, holy shit, like 30, 40, 50 totally. videos coming in together. So thank you for offering that up. Go over to tribute.co. The code will be below this video or audio, whatever you're listening to. Thank you so much, Andrew. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you.